0: There was a time, not too long ago, when to say that something was a myth could only mean that it was false. To discuss it seriously was beneath the dignity of a modern person who had now gone beyond the need for stories. We, after all, deal only in truths and realities, or should I say facts. Fortunately, this time, has passed for most people, especially now that Joseph Campbell has appeared on a television series about myth and, as it were, place religious mythology in the sacred context of the great oracle of modern myth. In the field of religious studies, given the work of Mircea Eliade and others, it has long been recognized that myth provides the paradigms for human culture, the model whereby human beings have shaped their lives and brought themselves into harmony with a reality that lies beyond all appearances. Among Western myths, the fall of Adam and Eve has lately been receiving more attention than usual. In most circles, people no longer worry about the historicity of the account, but instead focus on its meaning and its interpretation. They recognize that the story of Adam and Eve has had a deep influence on the way that Jews Christians and Muslims have lived their lives over the centuries. As feminist scholars have been quick to point out the role of women in western culture has often been justified by interpreting this myth in certain specific ways. And hence many feminists have altered have offered alternative interpretations if not alternative myths with the aim of rectifying certain perceived wrongs. In the Islamic context The basic story of Adam and Eve is set down in the Quran. But there are significant differences in detail from the Hebrew Bible account. Understanding these differences can help us grasp the Islamic view of human nature. Throughout Islamic history, Muslim thinkers have offered interpretations of this myth with a view toward bringing out the implications of the Quranic account and applying them to everyday life. Given that the Islamic tradition provides a different version of the myth in the first place, and in the second place, interprets it from perspectives that are sometimes unfamiliar to the Judeo-Christian tradition, investigating Islamic accounts can help us understand not only the religion of Islam, but also the implications of our own understanding of the myth. But before I enter the main topic of my talk, Let me first say something about the title. The term Sufi is liable to misunderstanding, Since it has been used in a wide variety of senses, some positive and some negative, I should clarify what I have in mind so that hopefully people will not react by saying, oh, that's Sufism. It has nothing to do with Islam. Or that's just mysticism. I have long noticed the ease with which certain topics in Islamic studies can be dismissed, especially by scholars who should know better, simply because many people have filed Sufism into a certain cubbyhole that does not correspond to their own perception of what is important. For my own part, I am not using the term to refer to any of the specific historical movements or figures that have employed the name for themselves, though they are not necessarily excluded. What I have in mind is a certain perspective upon things present already in the Quran that has sometimes been stressed and sometimes put off to the side throughout Islamic history. Sufism in this sense refers to that dimension of Islamic life and thought that emphasizes meaning over form, spirit over body, significance over bare fact, love over obedience hope over fear, mercy over wrath. Defined in this way, Sufism appears as the inner life of Islam. One might use instead the term Islamic spirituality. For the purposes of today's discussion, it is sufficient to keep in mind that the the Sufi dimension of Islam stresses God's nearness, mercy, and compassion. While the juridical dimension, whose primary concern is putting the Sharia, the revealed law, into practice, emphasizes God's distance, justice, and wrath. The motif of Sufi teaching can be summarized in the prophetic saying, God's mercy pre- precedes His wrath. The jurists, of course, cannot deny this, but in practice they emphasize God's kingly and lordly qualities, more than his loving and gentle qualities. For them, God is a king to be obeyed, without question, not a sweet friend with whom one can come to an intimate understanding. Given the fact that most Sufis stress the priority of God's goodness and compassion, it is only natural that they place emphasis on the positive side to Adam's fall. And given the fact that Sufis are not overly concerned about form and details, they place stress upon the spirit and the meaning of the myth. This leads to a great deal of reflection and meditation. And as a result, I speak of Sufi views in the plural, since there is not a single view shared by all Sufis. On the contrary, different Sufis have offered a variety of interpretations, and single individuals, frequently provide different, and even in certain senses, conflicting meanings to the same details of the story. As for the word Adam, I use it in my title as it is frequently used in the Islamic tradition, to refer to the original human being, and by extension to all human beings. There is no suggestion that anyone, such as female human beings, is excluded. The fall of Adam is the fall of everyone. Though the question of the distinction that is often made between Adam and Eve is a fascinating one, it is secondary to the question of the human situation. And frequently, our authors do not even mention the distinction. Instead, they discuss what the myth signifies for our existence as human beings, whether we be men or women. Most authors classified as Sufis have something to say about Adam's fall. And although certain general themes can be found, I find it more interesting to investigate the interpretations that are not so common. In any case, the topic I have chosen is impossibly vast, unless certain limitations are placed upon it. Hence, I will restrict myself to speaking about a single author, and in fact a single work. The author in question died in... 534 of the Islamic calendar, the year 1140, the Common Era, and wrote the first major commentary in Persian on the divine names, a work whose title can be translated as The Ease of Spirits in Explaining the Names of the All-Conquering King. The author's name is Ahmad Sam'ani, and he lived most of his life in Maher, which is located in present-day Turkmenistan, in the Soviet Union. Do not be surprised if you have never heard his name. I only came to know about him a few months ago when I received a copy of his book, which was just published last year. I quickly realized that this 600-page work is one of the great masterpieces, not only of Sufism, but also of Persian literature. I could go on at length, talking about its virtues, but instead I will provide a few sample passages concerning the fall of Adam to illustrate both its content and its style. Samani repeatedly comes back to the Quranic account of Adam's fall, providing a number of different perspectives on its significance. Some of his interpretations are common in earlier or later Sufi literature, and some I have not met with elsewhere. I certainly know of no other Islamic text that devotes so much attention to the meaning of the fall. And I also know of no other prose work with such originality, and freshness, rich use of poetic imagery, and sense of humor. The work most similar in spirit is the Masnavi of the great poet Jalal ad-Din Rumi, which was written about 120 years later than this work by Samani. Many of you may not be familiar with the Islamic account of Adam's fall. It can be told briefly as follows. I leave out many details, but I mention those details that are especially important in Samani's eyes. God decided that he would set in the earth a vicegerent, a representative. Before creating the vicegerent, he informed the angels about his decision. They seem to be somewhat taken aback since they said, I quote, What? Wilt thou place therein one who will do corruption there and shed blood while we glorify thee in praise and call thee holy? This is Quran 230. God replies simply that he knows something that the angels do not know. Having created Adam, God teaches him all of the names. These names are the names of everything or the names of God, or both, depending on various interpretations. God asks the angels the names, but they admit their ignorance. Then God has Adam teach the angels the names, and reminds the angels, God reminds the angels that he had said that he knew something that they did not know. Then he commands the angels to prostrate themselves before Adam, and all of them do so, except Iblis, or Satan. When God asks Iblis why he refused, Iblis says, I am better than he. You created me of fire and you created him of clay. The fact that God created created Adam of clay or stinking mud is mentioned several times in the Quran and described in some detail in the sayings of the Prophet. The Hadith literature. In brief, God took a handful of earth and kneaded it for 40 days with his own two hands. Then he breathed into it from his own spirit. Perhaps at this point he offered the trust, al-Amanah, to the heavens, the earth, and the mountains. But they all refused. The human being, here the term al-Insan is used instead of Adam. The human being carries the trust. And the Quran tells us, in concluding the verse, he is a wrongdoer, ignorant. Within the same mythic time frame, God takes all of Adam's descendants out from Adam's loins and addresses them. He says to the children of Adam, Am I not your lord? They all acknowledge his lordship. This is the covenant of Alast, a well-known theme in Sufi text. Now by this point, Eve has been created as Adam's companion, and the two of them are placed in paradise to roam freely wherever they desire. However, they are told not to approach this tree, which the tradition identifies as wheat. Hence, Samani frequently alludes to the fact that Adam sold paradise for one grain of wheat. When Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit, the cry goes up in paradise that Adam disobeyed. This is a key event, Adam's sin, if you like. But in keeping with the general Islamic perspective, Samani never refers to it as a sin, but but rather as a slip. Having slipped, Adam and Eve immediately repent, saying to God, Our Lord, we have wronged ourselves. God forgives them. And the Quran tells us at this point, Adam's Lord chose him. That is, he appointed him as a prophet. (coughs) In the same way, the Quran tells us elsewhere that God elected Adam, along with Noah and many other prophets. So Adam is a prophet. Finally, Adam and Eve are told, fall down, down out of it. This is the fall proper, through which Adam and Eve go down to the earth. It is perhaps important to note here that our author, Sam'ani, almost never refers explicitly to Eve. I will quote below only one passage in which her name is mentioned, the only passage I found in his book. This is not because Sam'ani wants to devalue the role of woman, but rather because he is not interested in those elements of the myth that allow for a differentiation of gender roles. When Samani says Adam, he means the human being. And that includes Adam, Eve, you and me. Since he is dealing with the question of what it means to be human, he can ignore the question of what it means to be a man or a woman. For to distinguish between Eve and Adam is to set up a relationship between them. And this makes it necessary to discuss the nature of this relationship. But from Samani's point of view, this is a secondary matter. Subordinate to the question of God's relationship with all human beings. The divine human relationship is the focus of the myth, not the man-woman relationship. The first question that naturally arises concerning the relationship between God and human beings is why God brought human beings into existence. In explaining this, Sam'ani keeps in view two basic categories of divine names. Categories that are frequently discussed in Islamic texts. One category are the names that refer to God's beauty, mercy, gentleness, and nearness. And the other category are the names that refer to his majesty, wrath, severity, and distance. Unique among all created things, human beings can know God and His whole creation, since they alone were taught all God's names, both the names of majesty and the names of beauty. However, people do not come into the world knowing these names in any conscious way. Samani points out that when Adam was in paradise, he had still not fully actualized the knowledge of these names. There, he had come to know the meaning of the names of beauty and mercy, but he did not yet know the significance of the names of majesty and wrath. In order to come to this understanding, Adam first had to enter into the earth. I quote here from Sain. God brought Adam into the garden of gentleness and sat him down on the throne of happiness. He gave him cups of joy, one after another. Then he sent him out, weeping, burning, wailing. Thus, just as God let him taste the cup of gentleness at the beginning, so also he made him taste the draught of pure unmixed and uncaused severity in the end. Since God is infinite, the possible modes in which the knowledge of his names can be realized are also infinite. Hence it is not enough simply for the father of mankind to know God's names. All of Adam's children also have to come to exist, thereby bringing into existence everything that is potential within the original human nature. This means, among other things, that hell itself demands human existence in this world. For hell is nothing but that domain which is ruled almost exclusively by the names of wrath and severity, just as paradise is ruled by the names of mercy and gentleness. And just as the present world is the place where the effects of the two kinds of names are mixed. The fact that God is both merciful and wrathful demands that there be both paradise and hell. Hence, Semani tells us God addressed Adam as follows when he wanted to explain to him why it was necessary for him to leave paradise. These are God's words now. Within the pot of your existence are found both shining jewels and jet black stones. Hidden within the ocean of your makeup are both pearls and potsherds. And as for us, we have two houses. In one, we spread out the dining cloth of good pleasure. In the other, we light up the fire of wrath. If we let you stay in the garden, our attribute of severity will not be satisfied. So leave this place and go down into the furnace of affliction and the crucible of distance. Then we will bring out into the open the deposits, the artifacts, the subtleties, and the tasks that are concealed within your heart. These two groups of attributes of God, God's gentleness and severity, are reflected in the two sides of Adam's nature, two sides that the Quran refers to as spirit and clay. Gentleness is connected more closely to spirit, while severity is tied more closely to clay. But to say this is not to devalue clay. Quite the contrary, for the qualities of clay allow Adam to demonstrate his true greatness. Without the clay, Adam would be an angel, not a human being. I quote from Samani again, If there had been only spirit, Adam's days would have been free of stain, and his acts would have remained without adulteration. But, undefiled acts are not appropriate for this world. And from the beginning, Adam was created for the vicegerency of this world. This last point is very important. And Samani often refers to it. The Quran states explicitly that God's purpose in creating Adam was to place a vicegerent in the earth. Adam could not have been the vicegerent if he had remained in paradise. I quote again Adam was not brought from paradise into this world because of his slip. Even if we suppose that he had not slipped, he would have been brought into this world. The reason for this is that the hand of vicegerency and the carpet of kingship were waiting for the coming of his foot. <coughs> if not, boss, the companion of the prophet, said God had taken him out of the garden before putting him into it. Now here, one can ask the following question from, from Samani. If God created Adam to be a vicegerent upon the earth, why didn't he, didn't he put him into the earth immediately? Samani offers several replies to this question. In the present context, he answers by having recourse to the nature of paradise, which is dominated by the attributes of mercy and gentleness. When Adam was first created, he was like a child, and he did not have the strength to bear God's wrath and severity. Hence God caressed and nurtured him for a while, until he gained strength. Then he sent him down to this world where the attributes of severity and wrath are displayed openly. I quote, Adam was still a child, so God brought him into the path of caresses. The path of children is one thing, and the furnace of heroes is something else. Adam was taken into paradise on the shoulders of the great angels of God's kingdom. Paradise was made the cradle for his greatness and the pillow for his leadership since he still did not have the endurance for the court of severity. One of the several virtues of Adam's fall is that by means of it, he paved the way for his descendants to enter paradise. Thus, Samani recounts how God sent Adam out of paradise with the promise that he would bring him back with all his children. Here God is speaking. Then the creatures will all come to know that just as we can bring his form out of paradise through the attribute of severity, so also we can bring him back through the attribute of gentleness. Tomorrow, Adam will go into paradise with his descendants. From all the atoms of paradise, a cry will arise because of the crowding. The angels of the world of dominion will look with wonder and say, is this that same man who moved out of paradise a few days ago in poverty and indigence? Adam, bringing you out of paradise with a curtain over this business and a covering over the mysteries. Suffer a bit of trouble, then in a few days, take the treasure. Like Rumi and many other Sufis, Samani finds the key to the mystery of creation In God's love for human beings. And the human love for God that grows up out of the divine love.